First Peter chapter 5. Verse 8, the Apostle Peter writes, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. (laughs) Peace to you. Sorry, I'm immature. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And Lord, we just do lift up this time of Bible study and pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to fight the good fight, to run our race with endurance. You'd strengthen us, Lord, so we know the proper way to prepare ourselves as we go into this world that doesn't know you and be able to share the light and the goodness and the joy and the beauty of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Every battle has at least one thing in common. I'm sure that we can think of a lot of different things that it has in common, but there's one thing in particular I want you to think about. Everyone who goes into the battle has a plan. A person who's going to fight a battle needs a plan. And Peter, as he concludes his letter, does not want these followers of Jesus there on the outskirts of society to forget that we too need a battle plan. That's the title of the message tonight, Battle Plan. As Christians, if we are going to fight a spiritual battle, it would be completely ridiculous if we went into the battle without a plan. If you think of anything, whether it's sports, imagine a basketball team going onto the court, never training, never practicing, having no plays, just, we'll see what happens. I mean, you guys are talented. I've seen you play one-on-one, and we'll just figure out what happens when you get there. You want to win. And because you want to win, you formulate a plan. Guys, if you want to ask a girl out, you need a plan. Yet, and I'm not saying you've got to be so meticulous about it, but you shouldn't just go up to the girl and say whatever's on your mind. That's just not going to end well. It's like, I think you're really pretty. It's not a good way to go about it. And how much more do we as Christians need to have a plan so that we don't waste the time that we have This short life that we live, we are to be good stewards of it so that at at the end of our lives, we're we're at the gates of heaven and God says, what did you do do with the gospel I've entrusted to you? And you you have something to show for it. You say, that time I was in high school, those four short years, like high school is so short, so short that I've been on staff longer than the duration of my entire life. Uh, time in high school. Four years. I've been on staff for five and a half years now. It's crazy. It just flies by. And if we're not careful to have a plan going into it, the enemy 
is roaring like a lion, and he's seeking whom he can devour. Not just attack, but he wants to swallow you whole. And that's actually the same word that he uses of Jonah when he was swallowed up by that fish. So imagine that Satan wants to take each and every one of you and devour you completely so that you are lost in darkness, so that you do not know what you want to do with your life. You don't have any sense of God's call. You have no sense of his spirit. You have no sense of his love. So Peter, what he does is he gives us a great outline. He says there are four things you need to do in your plan of attack. Number one, keep your guard up. Number two, you got to fight with the right gear. Number three, don't go alone. And then number four, pain is a path, not a destination. So firstly, we got keep your guard up. That's in verse eight. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Imagine a boxer going into the ring with his guard completely down. He doesn't even care. He's just like, ah, just, you know, this guy doesn't look that threatening. A boxer, he needs to have his hands in front of his face, guarding his body in close, so that when the attacks come, he's able to defend himself. And I think a lot of Christians minimize the role of the demonic forces. You know suffering and you know adversity, but you forget that you have an adversary. Everyone knows that we have trials. We have hard days. But we're not very conscious often that there are trials that come straight from the demonic forces. That doesn't mean that all of them do. But to ignore the possibility that there's a spiritual attack happening would be foolish. It would be to keep our guard down and let the enemy throw his fiery darts straight at our soul. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 16 tells us to hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. And so what are these fiery arrows that the devil is throwing at us? They are attacks that are sudden, designed especially to torment your soul. That's what those fiery arrows are. That Satan, in seeking to devour you and I, he throws these attacks so that we would be tormented. And so in the Bible, you have some examples of these attacks. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh that was given, a messenger of Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. That's what Paul the Apostle mentions. This thing they prayed three times that the Lord would take it away and it would not leave. Instead, God used that in, in order to humble him, in order to be able to show himself strong on his behalf. But I know in my life, there have been times that, and you guys know, I've talked about it before, I've struggled with anxiety, struggled with panic attacks. But especially when I was in high school, I remember having a panic attack, and when I would, it wasn't just I would feel like I'm going to die, because that's what happens. Feel like everything around you, the world is ending, you can't breathe, you can't do, it's just terrible. You feel like you're dying. But on top of that, I had another voice that was kind of crowding everything else, saying, and your God's not going to save you. God doesn't love you. And mixed in with that is this Calvinistic kind of thinking. Now, nothing against Calvinists, but 
Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism teaches that God chooses some people to go to heaven, which we believe, but also chooses some people to go to hell. Now, we know that we don't believe that. We believe that God chooses people, and just because he chooses people doesn't mean that he equally chooses people to go to destruction. We talk about that in other sermons. We can talk about that later. But I thought, what if I'm one of those people that God just, for whatever reason, decide not to love? And you have that voice on top of everything else that's happening. If your God really loved you, then why are you going through this? If your God really does care, then why is your family going through this? Those are the thoughts that can come straight from Satan, the fiery darts meant to torment your soul. And when I would have panic attacks, even after that, that whole time, it's like I would get through them and it would make me nervous, but it wasn't to the same degree of feeling like, oh, it's because I haven't read my Bible. It's because I didn't pray. It's because I haven't been to church. It's because I didn't pay attention to pastor whoever's message. And you're thinking like you, ha- you operate on this legalistic relationship with God. That if you appease God, if you do the right things, then suddenly God will appreciate you and show you love and mercy. But if you operate out of that kind of way of thinking, you will always do the bare minimum. Rather than love, which motivates you. Pastor Lloyd talked about this past Wednesday. When you love someone, you don't think about, like on your wedding day, like, I should probably look good. I should probably get there on time. And you don't have these arbitrary rules. Why? Because you're in love. And the love between you and your bride or your husband is causing you to all of a sudden limit yourself to a whole bunch of different things that you probably never would have even thought of if you had not been in love. You stay on the phone for hours. Why? It's like, oh, I got to time this. Oh, I have to spend an hour on the phone with this person. You don't think that way. It's just like, it just goes by. Because you care and because the love motivates you. And so Satan wants you to forget that. He wants you to think that there are things that you got to do in order to appease God. This next way that Satan will throw these fiery darts is through distraction. Some of you, I can see very clearly, are distracted right now. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, there's a passage where Paul the Apostle, a couple other dudes, they are going to minister. And as they do, it says, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us. Really interesting. I never noticed that before until I read it in my, uh, I was teaching somewhere else. That's cool. This past Wednesday. And I read that. I was like, that's really fascinating. It says, as we went to pray, demonic forces came to prevent us and distract us. I remember when we were going to England years ago, when I was still in high school, we would do these street outreaches like we did this past time, right out there in the public square. And then people would come up to us like, didn't know if they were crazy, demon-possessed, have no idea. But people would try to distract the crowds. People would interrupt us in the middle of our skit, in the middle of us talking, mocking us, yelling at us, saying that they were God, saying they were Jesus the Pope. Crazy things. Like, people out of their minds coming to distract us. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do. Not only does he want to torment us, he wants us to not focus on the things of God. I just read an amazing book, amazing, by this guy named Kenneth Bay. 
And I never read biographies, never read memoirs, but this guy is the longest, um, he's been the longest detainee in North Korea since the Korean War. American citizen, also a pastor, also a Christian, and he got imprisoned in North Korea for over two years because he had brought teams over to North Korea just to pray. And he accidentally brought in this hard drive that has some of those information, those files on it. They found out, kept him in there for two years. And as he's there, there are so many people that are just completely brainwashed. They think that America is only uh, just in disarray, violence. They only show the bad things on North Korean television and cut off everything else. And they say that Christianity is terrorism. And they say the Bible is an illegal book. Why? Because they know if people come to the knowledge of the truth, that truly will set them free. The average person in North Korea has no conception of the world outside of North Korea. They have no idea what life is like. So much so that they would have roads, highways, when it snowed at this one day and they had to drive to another prison about a day's journey away. And so he gets in the car with these guys and the whole road, and it's kind of like a gravel highway, is covered in snow and sees tens of thousands of people all shoveling the highway for over 200 miles. And he's thinking, like, literally did not even know there were houses outside of the highway, but people all came out to shovel. Politicians, people that are working at the bakery, everyone's shoveling. And he asked the person in the car, he's like, what are they doing? And the guy in the car says, well, what do they do in America? Just let the snow sit there? And he says, no, we have snow plows. Like, what's that? Like a guy who gets paid to just plow the road. They have no conception. And so the whole time, what's really ironic is they keep on telling him, they're like, oh, you've just been brainwashed by the Western society. You've been brainwashed by America. If you only knew how great our supreme leader was. And the most ironic thing, because they are just captured, captured in their minds. And there are so many of us, there are people in this room right now that you are letting Satan have his way. You're letting him distract you. And you don't even fight it. Sometimes you sit in a class, you're like, oh, I've heard this message before. Cool. Instead of posturing your heart in such a way that you're saying, I'm going to take notes. I probably will not get anything out of Alan's message, but I will take notes anyway. Why? Because if it's the case that God wants to speak to my heart, I want to make sure that I grab a hold of it. I want to make sure that if God is willing to speak to me tonight, that I will walk away knowing what the word of the Lord is and how I can change. But the God of this world, Satan, though he is not really a God, wants us to stay in the dark. It describes him as a lion, which is an interesting metaphor because usually the lion metaphor is used of God, not of Satan. But Peter is describing Satan's attack as a lion because lions will attack suddenly on unsuspecting prey. His goal is clear that he wants to devour us. And that's why Peter says, if you think about the gazelles, you ever watch Nature Channel or whatever, you always see the lions preying upon, sneaking upon, ambushing these gazelles or whoever it's, it's going to take down. And so the way to prevent that is to do two things. He says, be sober and be vigilant. Now he says sober, which means think 
clearly. That's the first thing. It's also, this word is used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We talked about it. It says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So think clearly, he's saying. Take all the thoughts, and we've talked about this before, but take everything that you're thinking about and just center it upon the hope in Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, you need to think clearly. And there are a lot of us that can't and won't. But if you think about it, there are so many people in the Bible that have made mistakes all because they were not thinking clearly. Samson and Delilah, perfect example. A man who clearly was not thinking clearly. When Delilah said time and time again, if, uh, so like, what's your secret to your power? And Samson's like, well, you can try this. Why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? By the third or fourth time, you had to think like, Samson, you were bound to fall. This is not going to end well, no matter what scenario you play out in your head. But he was not thinking clearly. David and Bathsheba, if he thought clearly, said, okay, this woman's married. Not only is she married, but I should be out in battle, and I'm not. On top of that, she's married to one of my mighty men, like my top army people. And I'm going to kill him so I can marry her. In no way is this practical. On top of the fact that he was already married. But Satan doesn't want you to think clearly. He wants you to be distracted. So instead of these two examples, when temptation comes, we need to be like Joseph. Not like David, not like Samson, but like Joseph in the Bible when he was with Potiphar's wife. And when this really good-looking girl basically wants to sleep with him. No one else is looking. No one else is watching. No one even has to know. He says this, how could I do this great sin against God? How many of us justify our sin because we feel like we deserve it? I mean, after all I've been through, I deserve the right to be mad. After all that's happened to me, I deserve to indulge in this one thing. Couldn't Joseph do the same? After the fact that I've been sold into slavery by my brothers, I've been locked in jail and been forgotten, don't I deserve, don't I deserve just this one little thing? He was actually in jail after the fact, but you get the point. Instead, he said, I cannot do this great sin against God. So we in the same manner, should apply this directly to our lives by looking at the relationships we enter in and ask ourselves, okay, is this healthy for me? Because so many people enter into bad relationships because they're not thinking clearly. They're thinking with their emotions and not with their head, not with the word of God not with the counsel of other believers that are strong and going to encourage them. How many of us just let whatever come through our ears, through our eyes, the media we consume, and you're just kind of like on certain pages on social media and like, well, I may or may not see anything bad on this person's feed. I may or may not see anything in this bad person that I'm following, whatever. And you just, you're not thinking clearly. You're just kind of acting, and it's almost like you're a robot. You're just going to these different things. Rather than allowing the Lord to dictate 
what we're focusing on. And it's not even just these ways that we might stumble, but Satan would want you to be distracted with guilt and shame. That he would want you to believe, well, there's no point in even trying to be holy anyway, because you're a loser. There's no point in trying to overcome this sin, this temptation, pornography, addiction, whatever, because you're going to fail anyway. Well, listen, Satan in the Bible is called the accuser of the brethren. That's not God. God isn't the accuser, and that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Side question. How can you tell the difference between the Holy Spirit's conviction and Satan's condemnation? What do you think? So obviously we don't want to be distracted by what Satan's saying, but how do you logically separate the Holy Spirit is rightfully convicting me and Satan's wrongfully condemning me? Does that make sense? Well, the answer is both of them have the same conclusion about your sin, but... The difference is, one is for your discipline so that you'd be right with God because he cares for you, and one is simply because you're a loser, and this is who you are. Whereas, if your identity is in Christ, that's not who you are at all. And so when the Holy Spirit convicts, it's never to make you feel guilty. It's so that you would draw near to God, not from him. So if you want to answer that question, the question is, does a conviction or condemnation draw you to God or make you run from God? Because conviction, because you love a person, should draw you to that person. If you happen to be married, which none of us are, then what you would do is, if you had sinned against the person that you love, you would want to make it right because you care about them. Even if you're in a dating relationship and you said something nasty, you say that you're sorry and you make it right with that person because you care about them. Whereas, if you had condemnation, now you're not even in a loving relationship. Like, oh, I know I'm a loser. I do this all the time. I don't even know why I do it. And, oh, I just, I'm not even going to talk to them. And you avoid that person instead. You don't even want to see them. You see them at church, you're like, oh, I know, I did that. Oh, you just run away. But love should drive us to, not from. Second thing he says is be vigilant. In other words, watch. Same word that's used in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. When Jesus says, watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So this means, basically, in order to see the attack of the enemy before it comes, we are to live each day aware of the fact that our hearts are prone to wander. And our hearts are also prone to attack from the enemy. It's kind of like in the parable of the sower and the seed, when you have the, some seed that's scattered on stony ground, and because it doesn't have any roots, it withers away. So for us, being someone who's vigilant in your walk with Christ, so you see the attack of the enemy before it comes, you're able to counter the punch before it hits you. What it means is that we are in prayer, we are in fellowship, we are in the Word of God. That we're making sure, examining ourselves, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. So watching, being vigilant means, since I know that I'm prone to wander, 
I know I'm prone to condemnation. I know that I'm prone to just pile all the guilt upon myself. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that my relationship with the Lord has deep roots. It is a relationship of love, not of legalism. Ask yourself this question. When you go home tonight, or maybe tomorrow, when you're alone with the Lord and you have time to reflect, ask yourself this question, really important question. Am I frustrated with God? Am I frustrated with God? Because I think if we're honest, like none of us will ever admit that for the most part. We'll never say, I am actually frustrated with God because you feel like it's a taboo and if you say it, you're like forsaking God or something. But it could be the case that there are certain times that you're upset that things did not turn out the way that you planned. And you have to do some soul searching. Examine your heart. Watch the fact that your heart is prone to wander. Watch the fact that we are evil and unbelieving and we will do stupid things. Because the thing is, if God is not our Savior, we're going to look to something else to save us. If God didn't give me the relationship I wanted, maybe this person will. If God didn't give me the thing that I I hope for, affirmation, popularity, maybe this person will. And you're going to look for something else other than God to save you. We need to be very careful and be watchful. The second thing he exhorts us to do in our battle plan is to fight with the right gear. This is found in verse 9. It says, resist him steadfast in the faith. Got to fight with the right gear. You've heard the expression, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Modern day version, if you're a boxer, don't fight a ninja. Doesn't matter how well trained you are as a boxer, if the ninja has a sword, your hands will be chopped off and then you will die. I would know, I'm Japanese. Ninjas are pretty awesome. And to fight this battle that we are involved in, we need to have the right tools. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For we, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That verse right there should be one that you either memorize, you write down, you save in a note or something. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Is this glorifying? Is this from you, God? Or is this from the enemy? Being able to filter that. When you have a thought, you're like, oh, I don't know about, oh, I just, I want to do this. You just stop. Is this thought, how does this thought conform to Christ? Anyway, so the point is, in order to fight the right battle, we need the right gear. You can't put out, maybe some of you know this, especially Emily Fernandez, you can't put out an oil fire with water. What happens? It explodes. Thank you, Emily. Ask her how she knows after the sermon. It's true. Actually, I remember at being at the gas station, if you want to talk about a close call where God miraculously intervened, there's this one guy who came into the gas station, and he's like, oh, I just need some oil or whatever. So I get him oil, and then this guy, like, he was one of those people that, like, he's very proud, did not want to be bothered. It's like, do you need a funnel? I don't need a funnel. Like, okay, here's your oil. Have fun. And he's just pouring it, and he just, like, gets it all over the engine. His engine's really hot and stuff. And then I see little flames in his engine. And then I, I hear, like, 
he's blowing it out. What's wrong with you? Like, excuse, like I just, and like, look for the fire extinguisher. He's like, I just need some water. I'm like, oh no, this is going to be very bad. But he was so stubborn, he drove off. I don't know what happened. Hopefully he didn't die. But here's this man trying to blow out an engine fire. At some point, you got to admit, you don't know what you're doing. But let him be. Sometimes you got to let ignorant people be ignorant. Hopefully he didn't die. I pray. I pray. You can't put out spiritual attacks of the enemy by human means. And if we resist on our own effort, we might get things done. We might be able to blow out that fire a little bit, and maybe the flames kind of get quenched for a second. But an oil fire, if you blow it out, it's going to come back stronger once it gets that oxygen. And if we resist on our own effort, it'll only be temporary because we haven't dealt with the roots of the problem. Instead of addressing the root issue of what we're dealing with, the temptation, the battle, the guilt, the shame will only be suppressing the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, the temptation. I'm like, I'm not going to do it anymore, so I'm, I'm just, I have a battle plan. I won't look at pornography anymore, and so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home, and I'm like, throw out my computer, take a hammer, and, and just, and if you only do it by the works of the flesh, you'll never be able to address the spiritual battle. Now, this is important because we're only able to resist the devil because of Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So then how do we resist? We know that Jesus is more powerful than Satan. We are made a little lower than the angels. So yes, demonic forces, angels, they are real. And the Bible actually says we should be simple concerning evil. So some of you, like myself, you might have been interested in those things at some time. Like you, you see exorcisms or you hear about them and like the Ouija boards, is it real? Is it not weird, real? And because of that, you kind of get curious. We are not supposed to play with, around with those things because they are real. And it's not a joke. And we are to be simple concerning evil and wise concerning good. And so... Knowing that, knowing that there are spiritual forces at work, we can't fight this battle on our own strength because we're going to lose. But if we trust in Christ, we can. We can be more than overcomers. So then the question is, what do we actually do to resist Satan, to, to stand steadfastly to resist him? Well, a couple things. Number one, the Bible talks about the armor of God. So to take up the shield of faith. That's how you quench the fiery darts of Satan. So what does that mean? Faith. It means that even though you don't see, what's, you don't see the end result, you trust that God has the conclusion all squared away. Think about Eve in the garden. If she had only known what it, what it would have brought about when she sinned and took the fruit. If she had only known the end result Instead, she was looking at what was right in front of her. And just like the Bible says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. So many of us will sell ourselves cheap and will give up what is eternal for that which is temporary. Instead, when Satan tempts you, you got to say, it's not worth it. It's not. If I wanted to ruin my life, I could tomorrow. I could very easily get drugs, get alcohol, 
look at pornography. All this stuff is easily accessible. I could do whatever I wanted, if I wanted to. But I don't. Why? I'd be sacrificing everything. And why would I do that? But what happens is, some of us will compromise everything because we don't believe in faith that God actually has a future, has a calling on your life, has a plan. And so you feel like, because you can't see the end result, you just figure, well, it's not a big deal if I go one more day doing this thing or doing that thing. Secondly, take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, knowing that you're chosen by God, that he loves you, that you're sealed. So it's not a question of whether or not God loves you, because he does. If you have accepted him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, you have called upon the name of the Lord. But then the question is, will you ruin these years that God has given you? Will you effectively waste them because you have not taken up the shield of faith? Because you have not believed in God's promises? You might still make it to heaven, but as the Bible describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as one who barely passes through the flames, losing all of your rewards, all of the things that you could have gained if you had only believed the message of God. The next thing is take up the sword of the Spirit. And we know that Jesus used scripture to battle Satan. Did you know that Satan knows the Bible? I'm pretty sure Satan has read the Bible before. But he actually quoted scripture to Jesus in the wilderness. Because Satan always wants to pin God against you. And so how did Jesus combat that? Call him a loser? No, instead what he did is he quoted scripture to Satan. Knowing the word of God, he was able to destroy the lies of the enemy. And so then finally, to resist Satan, we need to continually walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If you don't want to sin, here's how you do it. Just walk in the Spirit. It's impossible to be sinning and be in the Spirit at the same time. So walk in the Spirit. That's all you have to do. Which is often hard because we forget that we are even walking this life with Jesus in the first place. Next point in our battle plan is that you don't go alone. So keep your guard up, fight with the right gear, don't go alone. Verse 9b, it says, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Maybe you haven't thought about this before, but let me ask you a question. Did Satan tempt Eve with Adam by her side? No. Where was Adam? Somewhere. Did Satan tempt Jesus when he was with the rest of the disciples? Or was it in the wilderness? You can talk back to me, it's fine. Maybe you don't know. Let me give you a hint. It wasn't with the disciples. So it was in the wilderness. Thank you. When you are alone, we are very prone to wander. It's very easy to get distracted when there's no other brother or sister there to encourage you. And Satan wants to isolate. He wants to make sure that there's nobody else around that can thwart the lies that he might throw at you. Oftentimes what happens is Satan will make you think that the only person you can depend on is yourself. So like, see that person lied about you? That person gossiped about you. 
That person doesn't care about you. That person doesn't love you. And pins everybody else against you. Pins the church against you. Pins me against you. You can't trust your pastor. You can't trust your leaders. You can't trust anybody. The only person you can trust is yourself. I've heard many people say that before. You know what that is? That is a lie strictly from Satan. Why? Because, know this, God's intended design was never to have a man alone, ever. We were always designed to dwell in community. Always. There is never a time when God wants you to be completely alone. Even when you spend quiet time with God alone, you're supposed to be with God, not by yourself. Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. Even God, when he created Adam, he said this in Genesis chapter 2. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So even if you're single and you have the gift of singleness for the rest of your life, you are not meant to be alone. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift his... Uh, lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And so how this connects with 1 Peter chapter uh, 5, verse 9, it says, the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood, brotherhood in the world. And oftentimes what Sam wants you to think is that nobody knows what it's like to be you. Nobody else knows what you're going through. And you can, you can try talking to them about it, like the suffering you're going through, the fact that someone has cancer, the fact that this person betrayed you, this person got... But it doesn't really matter because no matter how accurately you describe it, it doesn't really describe the pain you're going through, number one. And number two, even if it did, no one else even knows how to relate to you. And so you go into isolation mode. I really can't relate. I really don't fit in. Well, this is what you need to know. And it's promised here in the Word of God. It says... That if you are struggling or confused, paraphrase, there are brothers and sisters with experience that are willing to walk with you. People that you can talk to. People that you can glean from. People ask, like, what does Alan know? I know a lot. And this is how I know a lot. You want to know how I know a lot? I've seen in 10 years being outside of high school, people get pregnant as teenagers, as young people. I've seen people get drunk. I've seen people get addicted to drugs. I've seen people die from drugs in the 10 years I've left high school. I've seen people that were leading worship no longer walk with the Lord. I've seen people that were on fire for God, just MIA. And so if there's anything I've seen in 10 years, I've seen a lot of heartache. And so when you ask me for my opinion, it's not just like anybody else's opinion. And in it's exponentially more with the people that are older than you, older than me. But this is what we can say. We know one thing for sure. There are definitely not the ways that you're supposed to walk the Christian life, and these are how, and this is why. Because we've seen the heartache. We've seen the pain. I have the friends, and I can tell you the stories. So if there's one thing that we want you to know, like that's one of the number one, one reasons why people are youth leaders in the first place, just so you know, is because they don't want you to make the same mistakes that we have made when we were in high school. So knowing that, you can, you can walk in such a way that you don't have to go down the same road that we did. But it's almost like a curse. It's almost like 
you say it and you tell people and the enemy's just like, but they don't really know. Because your, your situation's different. You have no idea. You're just a youth leader. You're paid to say that. You're a youth pastor. You're only here because of selfish motivations. And the enemy will throw in all these lies. And at some point, you've got to say, you know what? I'm going to resist the devil and he will flee. At some point, I've got to call it for what it is. Bring every thought captive and bring it to the obedience of Christ. And ask myself, is this thought from God? Hey, God, I have this thought that my youth pastor is only paid to be here, and that's why he's here, and that's why he's saying these things. What do you think about this thought? Well, that's ridiculous. At some point, we have to recognize that there are people that are willing to walk with us. Even after you graduate high school, by the way, we're going to walk with you. That doesn't mean that we're always going to be able to text you every single week. Hopefully, you can text us back. But one thing I can guarantee you, you have access to me for the rest of your life. You have my number. You can call me. You can be 60 years old, and I'll be 70-something. And I will answer the phone. I'll be like, hey, it's good to see you, even though we're on the phone. I guess that's what the phones of the future are like. <laughs> but do you have a plan? Are you going to college aware of that, aware that you need brothers and sisters? I warn people that are going to college about this all the time, but when you go to college, you need to find Christian community. People that will be able to walk this Christian life with you for those four years that you're separated from us, that you're involved in a group, involved in a church. Fourth and final point, which is a short one, is pain is a path, not a destination. He says, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So what Peter is saying here is that suffering is a temporary path to eternal glory. It's part of the package in being a Christian. You will be despised. You will be rejected. You will have trials. You will have persecutions. The enemy will be against you. But it's the pathway to eternal glory. It's temporary. It only lasts a little bit. The question is, will you sell yourself cheap for that which really does not matter in the end? All because you don't believe that there is an eternal weight of glory that's headed your way as Jesus returns. An abundant entrance. This is the thing that we need to keep in mind in a Christian life. If you're looking for motivation, the one thing you should fix your eyes on is the fact that this battle plan that we have, really, at the end of the day, it's not for victory because Jesus has won the victory for us. I've heard it said I believe it's Washman E that says, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And since Jesus has ultimately conquered the grave, defeated sin and death, we know for certain that we will go to heaven for one day. And so this is just a temporary sliver of time that we get to use our gifts and enjoy it and serve one another, love one another, cultivate our gifts so we can bring those characteristics with us into heaven along with other people that can be welcomed into the family of God. Don't sell yourself cheap. Don't look at the path that avoids the most pain because it's only a temporary path that avoids pain with eternal destruction following it. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 73, he says, I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a diff difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and finally understood 
the destiny of the wicked. That there's a way that seems right to a man, but the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. In conclusion, he has a couple verses. He says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, who was the person most likely who delivered this letter. He says, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, which is the church in Rome, it's code word, remember, persecuted church. You need a code word for Rome, so he chose Babylon because the people of Israel were captive in Babylon. And so the people of Israel in his time were captive in Rome. The church who is in Rome, basically, he says, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, John Mark. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. That's kind of optional. Peace to, to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. I mean, it's in the Bible, so I guess you have to follow it. The heart of it, though, man, I botched this conclusion. The heart of this point here is that when you get together, don't just superficially love each other. Actually care about one another. Sit down with somebody and ask them how they're doing. Embrace one another. When you give a person a hug, they're just, yeah, just whatever. Like, uh, I guess, like, that person smells bad, so just, like, come out of distance. Genuinely show a person, whether you hug, whatever you do, don't kiss people. Show that you actually care about them and you love them, that you're there for them. And so the battle plan that God would have for us is to keep your guard up. So Peter's writing, the fight with the right gear, that you don't have to go alone, and that pain is a path to eternal joy, glory, and the kingdom of God. So knowing all this, this is how Peter would have us end. A living hope. Remember, this entire book is about how in the midst of suffering, you don't have to have a bad day. Because even your bad days can be turned into joy when you see the big picture that God makes everything beautiful in its time. 